When I was in college uh, in the year 1800, uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> 1997, and I, uh, the, I went to UNC Asheville, and I think we're the, well, it's one of the few public um, liberal arts universities in meaning you have to take what's called humanities. It's part of the curriculum. A lot of you probably know this. I didn't know that at the time. When you're 18, you think you know everything, but you really don't. And it was really the study of humanity. And so every, some, every year, you had to take, I think it was four hours at least, um, and go to lectures, things like that. And of course, inevitably, you talk quite a bit about religion, because my first professor, um, she would begin to talk about uh, the, how, pe how man has always wanted to worship something throughout all of our history. And then she put this little extra thing in that wasn't in the book, where she said, but humanity has, the, we, we always miss the mark, that's what she said. And then she used a Greek word, hamartia, and I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, that sounds kind of like original sin. And so after the class one day, I said, are you kind of talking about original sin? And she said, yes, I'm kind of a closeted Catholic, so I can't really go into detail about my faith, but I try and weave in some things here and there. So I was talking about hamartia, how we, we were searching for truth, but we missed the mark. We don't quite always hit it. Now, she was the only uh, Catholic professor I ever had, for sure, um, because all the rest of them, when they talked about religion in humanities class, they always, I think almost all, without exception, used this illustration, which is the six blind men and an elephant. I mean, you've heard of this, this analogy. The six blind men... Uh, represent the six major religions of the world. So one could be holding uh, the tail, and they go, oh, I found a rope. Or they grab the ear, and they go, oh, I found a fan. Or I'm holding on to the leg, but you, you say, I'm holding on to a tree trunk. And the implication there is that it, it tickles the ear. It, it seems inoffensive. Everything's fine. It kind of preys on sentimentality. It, it seems, to, seems to avoid landmines. Everybody's happy. Uh, we're all the piece of the truth, but um, no one has the whole thing, and that's okay. You do your thing, I do mine. It, it's really an analogy. It's all about perspective, it, and it sounds fair and, and balanced when you, on, on its face when you first hear it. And the moral I heard back then, which is in a secular humanities class, uh, no one can really know the full truth about God. We all have maybe a piece of the truth, but we don't know the, the enormity of what we're talking about. And that's okay. You have an opinion, you have a piece of the elephant, and that's correct. But it does beg the question, if all the religions of the world are blind, in a sense, then how does anyone even know it's an elephant at all? In other words, what's the perspective of the parable teller? Because the parable teller has an objective position. The parable teller can indeed see that, no, friends, it's an elephant. But I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> you have blindfolds on. Those who hold to pluralism in this way believe that everyone is blind except them. Why is the pluralist given an objective position, but I can't? They're trying to say that no one has the truth except the teller of the parable. They possess, the parable teller 
claims to possess something that the parable says can't be true. So here's the paradox of postmodern thought, this dissonance, this cognitive dissonance of trying to hold these crazy ideas in tension with each other, and you really can't. The real moral of that parable, or that analogy, is not that all religions are equal. It is that I once was blind, but now I see. That, I think, is the accurate definition of that parable, because the real truth, real truth, it is not relative to the individual. We can see that the blind men were mistaken if we take the blindfold off and see that it is, in fact, an elephant, and there's no more illusion. Because you can't know that something is not right until you know what is right. In order to correct others, you have to know what it is. Now, here's the real deal. Someone has to know it's an elephant. Someone has to know the truth. And the apostles were men chosen by Jesus. They had the truth, and they were never afraid to share it, ever. They were always willing to share it at any time. And in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul is ministering to Athens, Greece. Athens, which is known as the birthplace of democracy, a culture that was largely pantheistic, believing that God is essentially in all things and everywhere. It's similar kind of to our day and age. It was a very pluralistic society, a place like the parable of the elephant, you had a lot of people who, to their credit, are searching for truth. They want to know the answer. But they're blind. And they're lost in a pluralistic soup, if you will. So I, the tr- search of truth is admirable, but just incomplete. It's just incomplete. And in Acts chapter 17, we start in verse 22, as Paul addresses men and women Um, many of whom are like our day and age today. Then Paul stood in front of Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through your city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, He who is Lord of heaven and earth does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him. Though indeed he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that this deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which we will... He will have the world judged in righteousness by a man he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. I really have a one-point sermon. You ready for it? It's going to be easy to remember. Paul leveraged the culture to point people to Jesus. That's all he's doing. He's taking what he's seeing, 
and he's pointing it to God, the, the true God. And he's saying, look, you have a, a temple here, you have an inscription that says, to an unknown God. That's an admirable thing. You're at least acknowledging there's something within you that is crying out to know this God, but you don't know where it came from. You can't quantify or make sense of what you're feeling, but you're at least acting on it. So it's not that you're wrong, it's just that you're incomplete. So this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, you've been searching, but you've been searching blind. The ancient Athenians believed that all people came from Zeus. See, not all ancient myths are wrong. They're just misguided. So Paul doesn't start by quoting Hebrew scripture to these people. He doesn't talk about Jewish history as he has done throughout the book of Acts. He knew that would be a waste of time. Instead, he quotes a well-known poet from Sicily. As he said, some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. There was, a, there was a poet from Sicily named Eretus who wrote, it is with Zeus that every one of us in every way has to do, for we are also his offspring. So Paul is saying, you think you came from Zeus. Actually, we'll just give him a different name because actually you came from the God of heaven, the God of Israel. But, he, but also notice what Paul doesn't do. He doesn't capitulate to this Sicilian poet and go, that's fine. You can come from Zeus. I'll come from... From, from Yahweh, and it's okay. No, but Paul doesn't judge, does he? He doesn't chastise. He doesn't make them feel stupid. He doesn't say their beliefs are wrong. He just says, you're, you're incomplete. You've been misguided. You were close, but you just missed the mark because of sin. So why does Paul leverage what he sees to point people to Jesus? Why does he even do that at all? It's because Jesus was not even on their radar screen whatsoever. He wasn't even there in their minds. Have you ever noticed that when you're trying to buy a new car, like a certain model, you always see that car everywhere you go? Like, oh, I really want that new Toyota minivan. I saw the funniest sticker on the back of a minivan. It just said, because we had to. But yeah, when you're trying to buy a certain model of car, you see it everywhere. Because why? It's on your radar screen, right? It's a little ping going off. Oh yeah, there's that Toyota Sienna. Oh man, I love that package. I like the leather seats for when my kid gets sick. Be easy to clean that. No, but if you're not in the market for a car, do you really pay attention to car commercials? No, you really don't. You just kind of, eh. if you're not looking to buy a car, why do you care? If you're not in the market for some brand new drug from a pharmaceutical company, do you pay attention to that commercial? No. People in bathtubs holding hands and partying with their multi-ethnic friends? No. Now, sometimes I do like to watch this pharmaceutical company uh, commercials just because I listen to the side effects. There was one commercial for psoriasis, you know, the skin problem, when side effect was death thinking, oh, great, I'm in my casket and I'm dead, but my skin looks fabulous. <laughs> no, if you're not in the market for stuff, you're not going to pay attention. And the people of Athens, though, they were, God was on their radar somewhat, but they're really not in the market for Jesus. 
And so he had to leverage what was around him to point him to the name above all names, to the name that saves, by which the only name by which we can be saved under heaven. And so he leverages that to help them. Your search for God isn't wrong. You're just, you just missed the mark. Because if some of us in this room are on the scale of zero to 10 of, of spiritual understanding, maybe you're a four or a three or an eight, a lot of people are zeros. And it's not a judgment, it's just a reality. Like, I, we, we did a, a drive-through here many years ago for the fall festival during COVID, and I was Daniel, <laughs> from Daniel the Lion's Den, and Susan Sumter was a lion, and she stood next to me, you know, <laughs> it was so fun. And these cars would roll up, and I would say, hey, have you ever heard of Daniel on the lion's den? And some people were like, yeah. And a number of people, when I would say that, it was just nothing. I mean, they had no idea. I know it's hard to believe, but it's true. I mean, people just have no clue what some of these stories are about. And again, not a judgment. But in many times, churches are really guilty of, of hanging a, a banner out front that says revival this Saturday. But people don't even know what that means right? They don't understand that. We, we have to help people get from a zero to a one or a zero to a 0.5. And we're talking about six, seven, eight stuff. You know what I mean? How do we move people from a zero to a one? That's what Paul is doing here. He's saying to this crowd of people in downtown Athens, listen, put your eyes on the truth. Don't you know, he, he doesn't fall to the temptation of the parable of the six blind men. He doesn't just give in to that and say, you know what, it's fine. You can do what you want and I'll do what I want. You know, Paul doesn't, doesn't compromise, but he also doesn't talk over their heads and make them feel stupid. Because you can't know that something is not right until you know what is right. In order to correct others, you have to know what is actually true. And in verse 16, earlier in this chapter, Paul's walking around Athens, and it says that he was deeply troubled by the idols of the city. He felt a burden within him for what he saw. The temple of Athena, where people would, would worship and offer sacrifices to this god. Other, a multitude of gods made of gold and silver and wood that people would offer sacrifices to. And he was deeply troubled. You could say he had a holy burden that he couldn't shake. Friends, when that happens to you, that is the Holy Spirit giving that to you. Your burden is your calling, the thing that you know you have to do. Like I have friends of mine that are missionaries in Europe. I'm a horrible international missionary. I, I've tried it. I mean, I'll do, I'll do whatever I need to do. But when I was in youth ministry for so long, I had friends go, I could never work with teenagers. Middle school boys would drive me completely insane. I'm like, well, I lost my sanity a long time ago. But we all have our calling. We all have our own burdens. We all have the own thing that we have to do. But some of you, it's worship. Some of it's singing in the praise team. Some of you, it's serving. Some of you, it's, it's a whole multitude of ways but it's that burden that God gives you. And that's what Paul is feeling as he walks around Athens. He sees the city and he's praying. I have no doubt he's praying. God, these people are so close. They're right, they are right there. They just need that little help for the blinders to come off. 
and to see that who they've been searching for is Jesus. And he's right there. Don't worship idols. There's a really great Thai restaurant near Tanglewood, on, near Clemens, and it's called Chang Thai. Highly recommend it. It's kind of a drive if you want to make the hike, but it's some of the best Thai food I've ever had. And when I first started going there about 10 years ago, um, the women there were all from Thailand, really sweet, and they had a big statue of Buddha up front. And they would put fruit in front of it and, and incense and all that stuff. And I would walk in and I would, you know, I'd be like, oh man, you know, I, I respect it, but I'm, I'm praying for you, right? Well, then I went back a few months later and I walk in and they're all, they're, they're playing worship music in the restaurant, Christian worship music. And Buddha's gone. And I went up to the owner. Well, the owner actually came by us or something like that. And I said, I have to ask. This is pretty amazing. The atmosphere of this place feels very different. What happened? And she said, well, some women came in here and had a Bible study for many weeks in the restaurant. And they witnessed to us. And they told us about this Jesus. And we gave our lives to him. And we've never been happier. And I was like, wow, y'all, this is a win-win. You got delicious food and Jesus. I mean, <laughs> you're set. But I give credit to those women, I don't know who they were, but that, that they felt that as well when they walked in that place in a loving, winsome, embracing sort of way. They witnessed their faith. And now that whole restaurant has a praise team. And they, they lead worship in their church that they started for other Thai people. It's amazing what, we, what will happen if we uh, don't ignore that pinprick of the Holy Spirit that holy burden God gives you, if anything, when you feel that, you've got to press into it and say, God, I don't know where we're going with this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow you on that burden. You know, and that's what Paul did. He's like, I don't like these idols I see. And he eventually starts to, as he would do, get into ar- almost arguments with people and have debate and dialogue. And I'm going to follow this through until that burden is released, until I fulfill whatever you want me to do, God. In many ways, I was asking myself this week, how does our culture worship an unknown God? How does our, what are our poets saying? I mean, think of all the songs you've heard in your life of unrequited love. Songs that speak to this deep longing for freedom, to be known, to be, to be whole, to be at peace. Where does that come from? Why do people even write songs like that? Because they have to, because it's coming from a place from within that they know they're yearning for this unknown God they've never encountered before. You know, this week, I've been struck by how many people in our world so desperately need hope. Amen? Um, In a shocking sense. And... I just want more people to know the hope that they can have in God. To know that that God is not unknown. God is not dead. God is not a fiction. God is not make-believe. Jesus is not, uh, you know, Shakespeare and all of his genius never could have written the words of Jesus, right? For anyone that believes that somehow this book is made up, who in the world speaks like Jesus? No one. No one could ever replicate this man and his life and his perfect teaching. 
And secondly, I have never met anyone in my life who has wholly given themselves to Jesus Christ and regretted it. I have not met that person because he is the answer you're looking for. He is the, the, he's the ultimate, he's the answer that's saying is God reaching out to you. God can be known. He can be known. Every single day you can know God and it's through Jesus that we encounter God. These are the words of Paul again. God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man, Jesus, he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can have assurance of your reality. That our faith is evidence of that which is unseen. And that it is through your Son that we can know you, God. That anyone that says, what is God like? That Jesus is the full manifestation of the Father. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. He is God. We thank you, God. And I pray for anyone in this place or at home that's in a place right now, they don't have hope and they're hurting. Lord, I pray they would place their trust in you, that they would see that you have been pursuing them every day of their lives and you will never stop. That your love is consistently and constantly faithful from day to day, from age to age. Nothing can separate us from the love that's in Christ Jesus. In this time of ministry and prayer, all are welcome to come forth and pray as you wish. Some friends will be here to lay hands on you and pray if you need that. But let us stand together as we worship God in this place.